quiet, numbskulls. I'm broadcasting. Hello, you're listening to the podcast, So There I Was. This is episode 96. Hoka Hey. Hoka Hey. There you go. <laughs> the great Tontini's back. Yeah, welcome him back. He was our first Rotorhead on the show. Had some great stories about going from the rag and, and flying uh, Navy helicopters to having a co-pilot use his head as a step stool to get out of a burning aircraft. <laughs> Ooh. And then on to this week, we're going to talk about some of the arming of Navy helicopters. Initially resupply and and vertical vertical replenishment, that sort of thing. But they could be used as weapons platforms as well. And he, he played a part Tantini's in that. has got a lot of information. You know, he's, uh, he's very passionate about that sort of thing. He was involved in, in the modern weaponry that they're carrying right now uh, yep. that led to, well, the three Hellfire missiles being shot, I guess now is a couple of weeks ago, right? Right, a few and weeks sink, ago. Sinking yeah. the boats. Off the, uh, uh, off the to... Gravely in the Red Sea. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting, very interesting history of it. He knows it all because he he was part of the process. Yeah. He was uh, there. He did that. He made the t-shirts. He did. <laughs> he did. And as as always, I learned something. Right? Absolutely. So, before we get out of the way and listen to him, we want to send out a couple quick thank yous first of all to Tuntini, not only for taking the time to spend with us and talk about this, but for his cash donation, he contributed $50 to us to help keep this show coming to you. We're deeply appreciative of that. A gent by the name of Rich Walker, new call sign? Dog. Dog. Dog Walker. Thank he you, He contributed Dog 25 Thank you. And uh, we have a new section lead this week, Steve Moravitz. Moravitz? 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 <laughs> yeah. New section lead. Thank you very much for stepping up there. And none other than... Bud Spencer, who contributed $100 directly to the site. So we are deeply are grateful awesome. for that. Yeah. Very why, humbling. Why people Thank are you. cracking their wallets open and well. giving us money? <laughs> keeping I don't the know. Wheel, they're keeping the wheels of so there I was turning, so to speak. Absolutely. And it's or, awesome. Thank or you. in this case, in this case the, this week, the main rotor. Keeping the main rotor turning. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Hey, that's a good catch. That's there right. you go. All right. Whirling, hey, whirling shit can of death, moving parts oh. going in every direction. Oh, I what see. is it? I was given sticks grief about it the other day. A helicopter yeah. is a million parts rapidly rotating around an oil leak, waiting for metal fatigue to set in. So <laughs> perfect. I couldn't yeah. have said it better myself. Much more eloquent than I said it. So let's get out of the way. Here comes Tuntini. Don't sit on the. This here is a true collective story about crossing the pond. At night, in the world's smallest cockpit, on the tanker, through the weather. Oh, and to the uh, tanker crew who uh, did that. Thanks a lot. We really appreciated that. I'm just kidding. No, I'm not. Well, there I was. Crossing the pond, and you could see that I wasn't exactly fond of all the. So there I was in Pensacola, Florida, at NAMI. Oh boy. In an auditorium packed with flight surgeons. 
The Naval Aviator's Biggest Nightmare. And if you want to know what happens next, keep listening. Okay, that's ter- that's terrifying <laughs> all in itself right there. Welcome. That's how... That's how it starts. Uh, welcome to So There I Was. And this is uh, one of your cohorts, Fig. I'm in Kearney, Missouri today. Where are the rest of my cohorts? Sticks, where are you? Well, I'm in Lee, New Hampshire, and we are just having a great time. It's uh, nice and chilly here. Yeah, that is uh, something that will raise your blood pressure for sure. Oh, man, and then some. Repeat here, coming to you from Maastricht in the Netherlands. About to fly home tomorrow, but... Wow, what a great lineup we have tonight. I want to welcome back a gent we had on a show earlier, author of American Quest and a new book available to read to your toddlers when when Christmas time comes around. So looking for Santa Claus. So the great Tutini, Wayne Tunic. Welcome back, sir. We're glad to have you back. That is a terrifying aviation tale, if ever I've heard one. An auditorium full of flight surgeons. Oh, my God. Yeah, no, that's not good at all. Oh. Let me say to you guys, you probably don't remember from last time, but my greeting, Hoka Hay, which is the Sioux, Sioux Chief Crazy Horse. Alleged- Let's roll, right? Alleged war cry, uh, Hoka Hay. So Hoka Hay to you. Thank you for, for letting me be on again. And just as a note, I'd like to say I donated today so that I hey. sit here and say to everybody else, these guys, all three of them do a great job. And I recommend for everybody to, to donate. So... Wow. No, no we're home. Thank you. That's, that's, that's thank fantastic. You. Thanks, Tutini. Even with your Marine handicap, you guys <laughs> continue to amaze me. You added sticks, and, and he keeps uh, keeps the academic flow going, so, so it's really coming together. So great on you for doing that. And like I said before, I reviewed my last talk, talk like any good naval aviator. I'm going to do better this time. I can't get rid of my New York accent, though. You're just going to have to live with that. And if it bothers you, <laughs> hey, I'm from New York. I don't care. So. Forget about it. Good. Yeah, forget yeah. about That's it. That's right. <laughs> Hold on. You talking to us? <laughs> I wanted to bring you back. Obviously, some great aviation stories. For those who haven't read American Quest, it centers around a young American boy from West Virginia in high school trying to figure out what he's going to do with his life and becomes a rescue swimmer. And it's a hell of a ride from there. It's a great, great story. So thank you. Thank you for that story. That was, that was awesome. More, I think we wanted to have you back and and chat more about the arming of Navy helicopters, that they're not just a uh, search and rescue platform and and a vertical replenishment platform, but they're, they're a battle platform and have been involved recently in the news. So, which is a which is a great stepping off point, I think, to to talk more about that. And if, if so, if uh, I guess if you could ch- chat about it, the, the, there was one involved with the guided missile destroyer. Was it the, the Gravely? Yeah, a couple it, weeks it, back, it yeah. was the Gravely. I'm going to talk about that, but before I do, okay. again, oh, good. In keeping with my critique of myself, 
of my flight last time, one of the things that I found lacking was humor. I don't think I was as humorous as I am known to be, believe it or not. And so, so I was there. I was in at NAMI. How did I get there in this auditorium yeah. full of flight surgeons? So it sounds like a bad a beginning of a bad joke. Well, the joke is coming. Stand by. Oh. Okay, my uh, I was the CEO of the RAG, and one of my pilots came in and said, "You know, hey Skipper, uh, I got problem with allergies, and they're sending me to a med board at Mat- NAMI, and that meant there was going to be a determination of whether he would be permanently grounded." So this was a big deal type thing. So I'm like, when is that? And he's like, next week. And I'm like, okay, I'm going with you. So (laughs) right on. We both flew out there and got to NAMI, big auditorium and filled with flight surgeons. And the interesting thing, I don't know if they still do it, but at that time it was run like a trial. There was a prosecuting flight surgeon that was giving the why he should be grounded. And then there was a defending flight surgeon that was in front of all these flight surgeons. And then they would make a determination. So we were in the auditorium and they said to me, you know, typically we don't see the COs come to these things. And I'm like, well, I'm here. Maybe I can say a few words before we begin. So they said, okay. So I get up there and gave them a greeting. And then I said, so let me tell you a story. So this naval aviator walks into a bar, puts down his money, and he orders a drink. And he says to the bartender, you know, all flight surgeons are assholes. All of a sudden, in the back of the room, a guy stands up and says, hey, I take exception to that. And the naval aviator looks at him and goes, why, are you a flight surgeon? And he goes, no, I'm an asshole. (laughs) (laughs) So that... I did that loosen the, did that loosen the crowd up? And it got about a few chuckles. So that tells you, you know, flight surgeon humor. Of course, my my pilot that I was there to help was shaking his head in the front row. Oh, and, sure. Yeah. Oh, my career was over. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He thought my skipper just, just put the nail in my coffin for crying out loud. He thought it was over and... Uh, after that, they said, okay, uh, he needs to leave, and so do you. And I said, oh. why do I need to leave? And he said, well, we're going to be deliberating on, they had a whole bunch of discussions, you know, beforehand, and we're going to deliberate this. And I'm like, well, why do I have to leave? In fact, I'm not leaving. So I sat there, and I listened to the deliberations, And I only weighed in a few times. The big thing was, you know, there was a 
one one billionth chance that his allergy would flare up and, you know, he would have breathing problems. And, of course, we're in a multi-piloted aircraft. You know, I mean, right. That's, right. it's not going to cause a crash. So they actually came to the conclusion that, you know, he could not fly single-piloted, but in a multi-piloted, he was okay. They gave him a waiver. And everybody was happy. He went on to be a CEO and have a great career, and and, and that was great. So, so that was the the joke. I hope you enjoyed it. <laughs> I did enjoy that joke. Thank you. That was Santini. awesome. And, and let me tell you, I you can swap out that because, like, when I was at the NRO and working with the Air Force, instead of flight surgeons, you just say all oh, Air Force are assholes. So it's it's it can be used in in many it's a multi, Yeah, it's a multi it's a multi-usable tagline there. That's nice. That's, you could use it with lawyers. Efficient. That's efficiency right there. That's right. So that, lawyers, so that nurse means, practitioners, whatever. Yep. So here's here's the uh, one interesting fact I think I, I wanted to just sort of bring to the forefront. So Tuntini was our first rotor head on the show and I happen to actually be the second. So you've got dash one and dash two on the show, there back you on the show. But I, I actually had really wanted to, when I was still flying with the coast guard, I actually wanted to become a flight surgeon and even went as far as going and we use physician assistants as our flight surgeons. I went to the Admiral of health and safety and pled my case and said, I know I'm a commissioned officer and I know the PA program is for enlisted members only, but I'd really like to go. And I, I lost, but I did ultimately opt to. So I then got out, and I actually went on to become a nurse practitioner. So, but that's a whole other long story. So, and not why well, we're here. The again, he couldn't fly single piloted, but that brings me to. And again, I'm going to get to the arm helo piece, but the, okay. the the next story is interesting, and that is, I'm pro probably one of the only people that has flown the SH-60 Bravo single piloted to the ship at night. Our NATOPS mandates what your crew and at night you, you have to have, you know, a, a qualified hack and a qualified co-pilot. And the way that happened was when I was a lieutenant, I was the Airland NATOPS evaluator. And that meant that I went to all the squadrons and I gave them their NATOPS evaluation. I flew with their NATOPS officer and then I gave a test and then they either passed or failed. And in that role, the, I was also working. I think he, he locked up. Oh, he froze. Okay. Well, well, we're waiting for him to come back, and I'm certain that he will. I wanted to mention that NATOPS is the manual by which we do everything. Yeah. What's uh, NATOPS it, stand for? N-A-T-O-P-S. Naval Aviation Training and Operating Standard. Operating Standards, yeah. Procedures. Yep. Procedure standards. Yeah. yeah. And he has frozen and gone away. So what else, what else, well, we're trying to work on getting him back. This is one thing that I can totally add. 
so the um, H-65 can be flown single piloted, and I have actually done a couple of or more than one or two single piloted flights. But going to the ship at night single piloted is insane. I mean, it just I'm curious to hear how, you know, how or why that was done. I'm sure it obviously was done according to standards, but. I, I'm kind of curious as well. I was wondering if he was, he, you know, single pilot because the other pilot was not there mentally. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I think we've all been in that situation before yeah. where we've been flying with somebody that really wasn't there. So we were kind of yep. all by ourselves. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. probably that's, that was me the first time I was flying, <laughs> flying in the helicopter, you know, but that's okay. Oh, geez. So, yeah. But it, yeah, I mean, that's, the other interesting thing, and I, Tintini had mentioned this as well, the airborne use of force or the AUF for the Coast Guard actually was started with what's called the Helicopter Interdictions Unit. And he was talking about using a Coast Guard sniper with a 50 cal on board their aircraft, which I thought was an interesting, interesting point. And I, I guess our, our gunner's mates, our snipers on the helicopters have actually gotten to be extraordinarily proficient. But it's, it brings an interesting point because the using the Coast Guard for that, you have to kind of use the Coast Guard for that because otherwise it becomes a violation of the Posse Comitatus Act. You know, it becomes an act of war. So Yeah, because uh, Coast Guard's not te- technically part of the DOD. Right. We're now right. DHS. We were DOT. But then that allows us, that makes it a law enforcement intervention as opposed to a military intervention. So... Uh, That's why uh, my internet is screwed up. Hey, he's back. He's back. Yay. All right. We, you were, you left off right at explaining, uh, being the NATOPS basically model manager and giving check rides. And then you froze. Well, I was giving that my job was to, you know, be the, the NATOPS guy for the, for the East coast. And what happened was the, one of the other squadrons, the 60 Bravo, had only been out for about three years or so in the fleet. And one of the other squadrons had a mishap. The, uh, they crashed on takeoff. And basically what we found was two things. One is that the pilot became disoriented. He was the pilot, one of the pilots was killed. And then mm. the other thing was, was the pilot was taking off. We had automatic altitude hold and he had that on. So that was set to basically zero at the deck or 30 feet because the deck was 30 feet off. It was okay. at 30 feet. And instead of hitting the release button, for pulling the collective up, he basically left it in and just pulled against it. And then when he let it, let his pressure off, when he got higher in the air, it took him back down, which changed the NATOS procedure that basically said, you know, you could no longer do that. But the big thing was there was no NATOS procedures, believe it or not, for how to do a takeoff from the ship. And so that led me to, try to figure out, okay, who's, how is everybody doing this? And so I flew with guys on the East coast. I flew with people on the West coast. 
I flew with our Canadian exchange pilot. Mm -hmm. And turns out everybody was doing it differently. The, the East Coast would take off and basically let the ship drive out from underneath it, do a pedal turn, and then go. And the West Coast, they would pull into a hover over the deck, and they would dip the wing to get away and then go. And the Canadians, they would slide out parallel to the deck and go parallel to the ship. So, you know, Whoa. what was the best takeoff? Well, having, I didn't know in the future I would be connected to NAMI, but at the time as a lieutenant, I called NAMI and they had a spatial disorientation expert there. And he was willing to come out and fly with me and I would show him the different takeoffs and he would give a opinion on which takeoff was the best with respect to spatial disorientation. Because one of the things that we found from the mishap was the, the pilot that took off from the mishap bird when he took off, when he lifted off, instead of letting the ship drive out from under him and being stable, he pulled back stick and was going backwards. Then he stopped and threw the nose over and with the fluid in your ears, moving backward and then forward in that manner can set you up to become disoriented. So, right, yeah. So the question was, how can we avoid that? So, so I put in a waiver with Sinkland Fleet to fly this flight surgeon at night, which meant I was single pilot. And oh, yeah. Okay. Surprisingly, they agreed to it. No way. And we went out there, and of course, it was the darkest night ever. And, you know, one thing that I learned that night was, wow, having a co-pilot makes a real big difference. <laughs> yeah. Helping talk to you through things. And this flight surgeon was sitting there. He was just loving it. And I was sitting there soaking wet. Uh, right. I mean, uh, it, it he has was, no idea how much danger he's in. No, yeah. he didn't know. He, yeah, I would, I would just be know. saying to myself, this guy doesn't know. We're, we're about to die here. <laughs> but no. we went through the landings. We Luckily, everything went out okay. And then when he filed his report to me, it was... The, the Canadian takeoff was laid out and then they went and that didn't have any forward back motion. However, I knew that us U.S. helo guys were never going to buy into the Canadian way. And so what we did was we did a, a modified version of the way that we were doing it on the East Coast, which was to let the ship drive out and then do a pedal turn and go, which which they still pretty much do today. And, you know, so so that was the the story of being a, a probably the only 60 pilots, single piloted. Was the SH-60 
the Bravo, the, was that the only airframe that didn't have takeoff procedures from written down in NATOPS well, for, from the ship? I mean, I had flown the H-2 and we had takeoff procedures. You know, it was just... You know, I'm surprised. I guess I'm surprised that an airframe came into being, and and p- people who had flown helicopters obviously had some input in putting the the manual together, and no one considered putting shipboard operations takeoff procedures into the manual. Yeah, that's it stunning. Was, it in was, retrospect, it was you know surprising. Again, you know everybody focuses on landings. You know what I mean? And right. Takeoffs were just kind of assumed. You know, I mean, nobody is, you know, tip, typically pilots don't have problems taking off. <laughs> they have problems landing. Right. And so that somehow got missed. But but we got it in there. And again, it, it taught me the lesson of, you know, the co-pilot and the critical information that that person gives because you're pretty busy and having another person there telling you something like you're low or whatever that that really helps you keep you where you are just you know it's just like the lso right on the carrier i mean that's that's your right coming in for the landing you're you're they're, they're getting cues from that person just like we have in the in the helo sitting right next to you so that that illusion that you were talking about is actually called the somatographic illusion, and that is also the same uh, technique that's used in flight simulators when you when they want to simulate the aircraft accelerating, they actually will pitch the simulator pitches the nose of the aircraft or, or the simulator up, and it the gravitational forces. I can go through a whole dissertation on this, and you don't need it, but. The point being is is that the they use that illusion to give you the sensation that you're actually accelerating, and and that's what actually probably happened. I was kind of surprised that you would use the modes or the you know your autopilot modes at all that close to the deck, because we would never, you know, we were hands on the entire time. The other thing is is we had a field trim field trim switch so that even if you were using one of the modes with the collective, you could push on that button and you could then fly through it. So uh, I was curious as to whether that was a feature in the 60. Well, it was. There was a little trigger underneath the collective. And so that you could pull on that, you could make power changes and then release it and it would hold your altitude at what you released it at. But for some reason or another, they had flown on the deck with they. We, we did fly on to the deck with the altitude on because the altitude hold on because if you got all screwed up and you released the collective, it would hold you where you were. So okay. that was part of the approach. Now that now the NATOP says turn it off before takeoff. But at, prior to that, we, it didn't say that even though most people did it. And in this case, he left it on and instead of, pulling the trigger, he fought against the trim that was trying to bring him back down. And then when he released it, it brought him down. So, but yeah, that, that's, I guess the way of NATOPS, right? It's written in blood and exactly. we all, we all know that. So, but I do want to now get to 
what uh, repeat was talking about. And that is uh, last month, that was a big milestone in naval aviation. And that is the, a aircraft from the USS Gravely deployed to the, to the Red Sea launched and they destroyed three Houthi boats that were attempting to board a commercial ship. And as you know, we're at war there in the Red Sea, not just helos. I saw a thing the other day that there was a Marine Harrier pilot that shot down seven drones. Yeah. And, and a dis- that, that was a great article. Badass. Yeah. yeah. The, <laughs> the discussion whether he should be an ace or not because of what the definition of ace is. And, but the, the one thing that I would bring up is, you know, these destroyers that are out there, having spent my whole career flying off of destroyers or frigates, they are under supreme stress. Because of where they are in the Red Sea, and, and near the uh, the Strait, there, Bob El Mendez. Um, they're so close to to the missile launch that when a missile is launched, the CO of the ship has 15 seconds to decide whether he's going to shoot that missile down. Because you know those ballistic missiles are going Mach five. Oh right? yeah. So it's happening now. Yeah. And you can imagine that, you know, those ships and those sailors, they are, you know, at general quarters or close to it almost all the time. It's a very stressful thing for them. And it's really remarkable that what they have done, along with the strike aircraft from the carrier and the things that they have done and, and the the Marine squadrons. And unfortunately, I, I don't think it's getting enough press for what they are, what they are doing there and what they're going through. It's, it's a really dangerous situation because if one of those goes through, that could be, you know, I, I mean, you could lose a ship like that, a, a Navy ship. So, so, so the the 60 Romeo came off of the Gravely. They were a detachment, and they shot these, these Houthi boats and destroyed them, killed 10 Houthis. And really, we have not in the Navy shot boats like that and destroyed it with a helicopter since Vietnam. So oh. it, it, it is a big deal. And one of the things that, you know, kind of bothers me is when we discuss helicopters, everybody lumps helos into one thing, helos. You know, even though they're all different, they have different missions. And that's kind of like just saying, oh, jets, you know. And if it's got yeah. a jet engine, it's it's just a jet. You know, it's not an F-18, it's not a growler, it's not a... Harrier, it's not an F-35. Right. And so in in the Navy, we have, you know, two main 
areas. One is designated HSM, which is Helicopter Maritime Strike. And then the other is Helicopter HSC, which is Helicopter Sea Combat. And they, they do different missions. HSM flies the Romeo, and the Romeo is deployed both on the aircraft carrier and the uh, destroyers. And it's a sophisticated aircraft because it does ASW, anti-ship warfare. It can do SAR. It can do vert rep, but it's mainly ASW and anti-ship. has a very sophisticated ESM system and a tactical data link along with a FLIR that can link that FLIR. So the battle group commanders love that because when you're flying around and they're trying to figure out what, who's doing what, the helo can fly over and link the FLIR picture directly into combat, both on the carrier and also to the destroyer. Now the, and so sometimes those squadrons, will go and they'll deploy on the carrier and they'll deploy on the DDG and it's all the same squadron. In the case of the shoot down, that was HSM 44 and they, they shot down, they shot the, the ships, but they also have expeditionary squadrons, which support ships that aren't with carriers that deploy independently and HSC is the same. They are on the carrier, and they also support the vert rep for supply ships, and they have expeditionary and carrier base. So typically, the carrier is going to have two squadrons on it, HSC and HSM, and all those destroyers will have HSM debts on them that are there supporting the destroyer and the weapons that the Sierra and the Romeo carry, they can carry Hellfire missiles, M240 machine guns, GAU-21, which is a 50 cal. Okay. Sierra actually has a 20 millimeter fixed forward firing that they can carry as well, and 2.75 IR guided rockets. So okay. it's got a pretty good amount of weaponry on it as well. Could- I hate to interrupt the flow. Can you uh, break down HSM versus HSC? I got it. For our listeners. HSM, Maritime Strike, HSC, Sea Combat. My question is, can you have one squadron with both missions, or are those separate squadrons, separate mission sets? The both missions, meaning like vert rep and... So, uh, so HS, HSM squadron, w- w- will it also have HSC air helicopter capability? No. It should. Okay. The so HSM squadron specific, flies, specific. HSM flies the Romeo. HSC flies the Sierra. Okay. The Romeo is kind of the tactical one that has all of the, the bells and whistles. The Sierra is more of... For instance, in the Romeo, we can only fit five people in there because of all the computers and everything that's in it. The Sierra can put like 10 people in it because it's, it's almost like a Blackhawk. It doesn't have the computers 
but okay. it does have the guns. There's a so the 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 HSC and Sierra. The, one of their missions is combat SAR. So you know if they were off the coast and somebody had a launch for a combat SAR off the carrier, it would be an HSC. If somebody had a launch to shoot a missile, it would probably or Hellfire. It could be either. But if it was coming off a destroyer, it would be the the HSM Romeo that do that. Gotcha. Okay, yeah, that's a- the breakdown I was kind of looking for. And just uh, okay. for our listeners, CSAR or Combat SAR is Combat Search and Rescue for a down pilot for a pilot who's off the carrier had to eject, been shot and, down. Something. And, yeah. and, and that list. Sorry, Tontini, yeah. That list of weapons that you rattled off. You know, Hellfire M two. M two forty Gal Gal twenty one are those all on the the Romeo? All of them are on both aircraft except the oh the uh, Sierra has a twenty millimeter fixed forward fire and and that's not on the Romeo and the reason is is because the the Romeo because of all the computers and everything is is weight limited. And the rounds for a 20 millimeter are so heavy that in order to take enough to be worthwhile, you, you, you wouldn't have enough weight. Right. Enough power. So when did, so you, you alluded, you alluded earlier to the fact that th- this hasn't happened since, you know, we, we haven't had naval helicopters armed since the Vietnam War. When, so when, when did we start arming them again? What, so, when was that? that? That's a great start. So just a little armed helo history. In Vietnam, there was a large helicopter squadron called Helicopter Combat Support HC-1. And they flew the they flew H-1 UEs that the Navy got from the Army. They were armed, rockets, machine gun. H-3, you might have heard the... Uh, the term for the SAR, the H3 SAR helo was called the Big Mother. Okay. And then they also flew H2s. And the H2s would de- be deployed on destroyers off the coast. And if an airman went down, they would go in. And there's the famous story of Commander Clyde Lassen. There's a destroyer named after him. He was in HC-7 flying the H-2, and he got the Medal of Honor for picking up two downed airmen. Basically, got all shot up, turned his lights on at night, barely made it back to the destroyer with almost zero fuel, and was given the Medal of Honor. Great story. Clyde Lassen, if you ever get the time to look him up. But... In the beginning of the Vietnam War, it became very apparent in the Mekong Delta that support to the Brownwater Navy by helicopters was going to be needed. And they basically took all the UEs out of HC-1 and put them in one squadron called Helicopter Attack Light HAL-3. And if you haven't heard of HAL-3, the Sea Wolves, there's a number of different videos on the internet and books about them. It's the most decorated squadron in the Navy. Five Mm -hmm. Navy crosses and 31 silver stars. And just basically they flew off of barges in the, uh, in the Mekong river and ordered seal insertions, 
small boat and, you know, just an amazing thing. They were basically, they started in 65 and then they were decommissioned at the end of the war in 1972. In fact, the squadron was never stateside. It was commissioned in Vietnam and it was decommissioned in Vietnam. Wow. And so just a quick story on that. So I was an HSL guy, helicopter, anti-submarine light. And that was the predecessor of HSM. They changed the name and the HSL. We flew the SA-60 Bravo, which was the predecessor to the M860 Romeo. But almost all of the leadership of the HSL squadrons were all, many of them were Vietnam helicopter pilots, and a lot of them were from HAL-3. So when I was a young Lieutenant JG, my CO, you know, was running around with a silver star and, and, and purple heart, you know. Yeah. Yeah, that's 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 pretty cool. Yeah, I, I like it too. Cool. I was reading the story about the the Navy pilot that you know crashed his aircraft, Tom Hudner. I forgot what the movie is that was out about that here recently. Remember, he in Korea, he crashed his aircraft next next to. Uh, oh right, yeah. yeah, 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 and. So he got the Medal of Honor for doing that. But in that book, I'll get the name of it, but the the Korea, the pilots in Korea, a lot of their wardroom, the pilots in the wardroom, many of them were aces from World War II. <laughs> so yeah. you can imagine you're a new guy and you come to the squadron and you're sitting there and, you know, you're, your opso is a ace from World War Two. Uh, yeah, no, yeah, right. So, no, no intimidation there. Yeah, yeah. no so, big man. shoes to fill up. Yeah, <laughs> you're, you're probably going to listen to them, so, right? Uh, Boy, you should. Yeah, but <laughs> right. the so our commodore when I was that NATOPS evaluator, the commodore he was a decorated HAL three pilot, and. He had not flown the 60 Bravo much. He was pretty much flew the H2 after he got back from Vietnam, and then he became a Commodore. And so I was supposed to give him his NATOPS check in the 60 Bravo. And so, you know, we go out there, and of course, I'm the NATOPS evaluator. I'm supposed to be doing it by the book. And we're going through pre-flight, and I'm asking him questions. He doesn't know any of them get in the aircraft, you know, obviously he can fly better than anybody, but he doesn't know, you know, any of the NATOP stuff, you know, and I'm sitting there and I'm thinking to myself, okay, so what am I supposed to do here? Not pass him on his NATOP check? You know, here's a <laughs> right. from HAL 3, you know, Vietnam, you know, obviously he could fly. He, he didn't know, you know, the names of the stuff and things like that. And I'm like, yeah, you passed. See you later. <laughs> See you later. <laughs> right. So the, the, the book title that you were looking for was uh, Devotion. Devotion, yeah. 
It was a movie also. Great movie. So interesting side story with that is that he intentionally crashed his plane to help his wingman. And his wingman, when he crashed, was the first African-American naval aviator. So interesting, interesting side fact. Yeah. And what I meant to mention also was those helos flying off the DDG, the Gravely. The Gravely is mentioned is is named after Vice Admiral Samuel Gravely. He was the first office uh, African American officer to be on a warship, first CO of a warship, first fleet commander, and first African American admiral. So that that's quite a name on that that ship there. Nice. So, yeah. so I want to double back just and actually, uh, ironically, for a helicopter pilot, I want to bring it back to like the 10,000 foot level. What is the significance of what the Gravely is actually doing and why is it important? Well, I mean, you know, we've been in the Gulf, you know, since 1980. And typically, our problems have been in the in the uh, Gulf, not in the uh, Red Sea, in the, uh, the the Straits there. But what we're fighting in that war, which is an interesting development, is essentially a terrorist group has significantly shut down shipping. From the through the Suez Canal through the Red Sea, and they have no navy, and our navy is fighting them. This is really the first time, you know, in the past, navies have fought navies for sea control. We're right. we're having a sea control issue here against a terrorist group that has no navy, and it really. You know, the the missiles that the DDG is firing are standard missiles. I think they're about $2 million a pop, and they're using them to shoot down, you know, $1,000 drones. It's unsustainable. Right. And it's really made the surface, the Navy surface community start to, think about how are they going to take this on in the future? Because obviously, you know, bad guys are watching this and, you know, it doesn't take, you know, a genius to figure out, keep throwing drones and they'll run out of missiles, you know? Right. And so, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a very difficult situation that they're in. And of course, and I would liken it to a knife fight in the phone booth. I mean, there's no open water really there in the Red Sea for no. for our for well, our Navy to operate. They are really constrained because well, it's such makes, a small body what, of water. That's what makes the whole area so tough is that if you're shooting a cruise missile or a ballistic missile, you know, if the CVN is in the Gulf, the Iranians can shoot a, a cruise missile. You know, you're talking about less than a minute arrival time. Um, right. The distances are so short, it's very difficult for you to have the defenses that you need. Right. And this goes back to actually, I think one of the fundamental questions is why do we have a Navy? And that is about uh, projection of power. And that projection of power is there to protect shipping. 
And, you know, I was just looking this up. So through the Babel Mendeb, you can generally anticipate around 22,500 transits of, of vessels passing through there. It accounts for about 12% of the seaborne trade globally. And it's it, it sounds like it might be an insignificant thing, but the problem then becomes you now have to transit down around Africa if you're not going to go through there. And you're, there are also issues coming up with those ships now not being able to get insurance if they're going to transit through that area. So protecting that sea lane is vitally important to our commerce. And I think, a, yeah. you know. So Lloyd's London is booming. Exactly. But what What's that number, Sticks? 12,500? 22,500 transits per year. And that was in 22. Per year. Okay. Okay. Great. A great place to actually look for some of this is there's a, a podcast that's done by a guy who's was a SUNY Maritime grad, actually a professor at Kings Point now, called What's Going On with Shipping. And he does okay. a great job along with Ward Carroll, who also has talked about this as well. There's been some great information out there. And I, I think it kind of goes back to, you know, we need to recognize what, what the Gravely is doing, the sacrifices they're making, and, and what a significant impact they have on, you know, on global shipping. And that, you know, the, if, you think, yeah. if you think about it, how many navies in the world can actually remain over the horizon as we are? And I, I think that's, right. it can't be overstated. Again, it's a tough situation because we're, we're not essentially carpet bombing the bad guys and ending the whole thing. And that makes it much more difficult for the Navy. So, but I wanted to continue a little bit more and get us up to the armed helo of today of how we got there. So we talked about how three, they got decommissioned in 72 and 76. The Navy put, decided to bring back two armed helos squadrons, HAL-4 and HAL-5 in the reserves. And that's pretty much where the armed helo piece of the Navy resided. Those squadrons flew H-1s, and in the 80s, they transitioned to the HH-60H, which was a Blackhawk version version of the Blackhawk, had Hellfire machine guns, rockets, they were in helicopter combat support, HCF four and five. Those guys, they deployed in the Gulf War. They deployed in Iraqi, Haiti. They were deployed quite a bit. You know, they sent two and four helicopter detachments. And now they were transitioned to the Sierra and they became H. HSC 84 and 85 in the reserves and 84 was decommissioned and they're looking at decommissioning 85. So there won't be a reserve. Of course, now we have armed helo in the active force, but that didn't happen. In fact, when I was in the H2s in, in 87, when we did Operation Earnest Will, which was protecting the tankers the first time in the Gulf. We reflagged the tankers. If you remember, Reagan reflagged them and we escorted them. The H2s had no self-protection capabilities. We had no chaff or flares. We had a machine gun, no, no missiles or anything, but 
the big worry was chaff and flares, you know, if we were going to be uh, shot by a man pad or something like that. And so when I was in HSL 36, the H2 squadron, the SecNav, SecNav James Webb, Marine, I'm sure you guys have heard of him. Yeah, he was the Secretary of Navy when I was at the basic school. Yep. Yeah. He was awesome. He also, wrote, he also wrote the book Sense of Honor, which actually is one of the things that really motivated me to go to a service academy. So, yeah. great book. He came to our squadron, just happened to come and be there. And we were in the wardroom, had a bunch of people in there, including the admiral that was in charge of our wing. And one of the pilots said, why are we doing this escort mission with no protective equipment? And Webb looked at the admiral and said, hey, admiral, that sounds like a leadership problem. Or <laughs> the admiral. <laughs> now my career's over. Crap. <laughs> the admiral was dumbfounded. But the interesting thing was literally a week later, there were teams in the hangar putting that equipment on. Nice. Yeah. So, uh, but, yeah, we had very little arming capability. In the Gulf War, we had no real armed helos that were deployed on ships. And what we did is we relied on the Task Force 160, the MH6s. Those are the little birds. Uh, you've probably seen them in Black Hawk Down, guys hanging off the skids. So what they did is these army guys came on Navy ships, mostly frigates, and they would bring two little birds aboard and fly off the Navy frigates. And these guys were amazing. I mean, you know, you've heard of Task Force 160, the Night Stalkers. They're the special mm -hmm, right. group. They flew on night vision goggles. They were you know, flying at the top of the water, you know, the top of the waves, you know, one of, there was one story, one of them had a ditch in the water, the other one flew over and threw out a rope ladder, you know, pulled the, the pilots out. But the problem was that because these guys were ship qualified, they kind of rotated a small group through constantly. And they were deployed all the time, the same people. And the Army got sick of it. And I was finishing up a tour at Nav Air as the aide to Nav Air. And I went to the Pentagon, Air Warfare. And the Army called up and said, we're not going to do that anymore. And so we, had, we no longer had that in the Gulf War. We had to depend on them and we had to depend on the allies like the UK because the British Lynx helicopters, they were armed and, and they could shoot boats and things like that. So that really started the, the plan to get armed helos. And the way it was done was we bought armed helo kits and that required putting a FLIR on and mounting for weapons, et cetera. The bottom line was we had 85 kits and 359 helicopters. And so there was no way that that was going to keep up with things. 
And that really, you know, showed that we needed in our next generation of helicopters that were being built, the Romeo and Sierra, we needed to arm them. Unfortunately, it was still a question because this was a budget issue. And as you know, naval aviation is typically run by TAC Air admirals, and they weren't 100% on board with arming and spending money. And so that that's where I kind of came in. After my command tour, we were, I was sent to the Pentagon to be the head of maritime requirements in the director of air warfare. And my goal was to arm the Romeo and Sierra that were, that were being built. Okay. And I had to go through a bunch of briefings to get that approved all the way up to the CNO. I briefed the CNO on a few occasions and it really came down to the VCNO who was Admiral Fox Fallon. He, he took it on board as he was going to make the decision and the the real key component of it was how many and what kind of helicopters were we going to put in these new helicopters in the battle group and in the Pentagon myself and Admiral Killer Kilkline we would go and brief the VCNO and we would keep going back and back he, you know, he'd have different questions we'd have to answer them and you know but we needed that piece so that we could budget for it and we couldn't get the decision so finally one day we were in there we were supposed to get the decision he had all the other air admirals in the pentagon and we briefed you know here's the options you can have this many this type and how much it would cost and at the end of the brief he still didn't make a decision. And I was a commander at the time. And he said, okay, I think we're done. And I looked at the, the Admiral, who was a four-star, and I said, Admiral, when I woke up this morning, I said, I'm not leaving this office until you make a decision. <laughs> and he laughed, and he goes, I think we should have 22 helicopters, which was one of the options. And they went around the room. Everybody said, yep, 22 sounds good. And they said that that became what we, what we got that approved. But the big problem was the arming of those helicopters was not budgeted. So we were short a lot of money to get them budgeted. And, you know, money is tight in the Pentagon and again, uh, aviation is run by typically TAC Air, and there wasn't a lot of money to be spent for that. But one night I was at my desk in the Pentagon at about 1800, working late, and I get a phone call from the budget shop and a friend of mine, and he says, I've got $600 million I need to put on budget tonight. And we had that whole armed helicopter piece for both the Romeos and the Sierras. Okay. When I say armed, one of the big pieces of the arming kit is the FLIR. 
Okay, you need a FLIR to, to be able to shoot a Hellfire with the laser designator, etc. And so we put a FLIR essentially on every arm, on every Romeo, on every arm Sierra. There are some Sierras that just do vert rep. They don't have a armed kit, but not a kit, but they don't come off the line with it on there. Right. It's not a large amount. And so today, all of those helicopters, you'll see them on the news and stuff. They have on the nose, you'll see that big ball up front. That's their FLIR. And, you know, I kind of can't help but smile when I see that because. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It makes me (laughs) feel good. And not only that, my son is an HSM pilot. And so he's getting the advantage of that, even though, of course, nobody knows how the whole thing happened. But one of the pieces that I I forgot to mention was in order for me to get it to the CNO and BCNO, I had to get it past my boss, which was the two star in charge of naval aviation in the Pentagon. And that was the guy, Admiral McCabe, wizard was his call sign. And again, he only had a limited amount of money and helos was not his number one priority. But in the briefing for the decision to him, I knew it was going to be a big back and forth. And so my son was a wrestler. I brought in and I came into the briefing with wrestler headgear on the brief Admiral McKay. And the whole brief, all the... I would say something, and he, he would say something back, and he goes, that's a two-point reversal, right? You know, and he was going back and forth with me the whole time. I don't think he listened to what I had to say, but he sure liked the wrestling piece of it, and he gave me the thumbs up. So, so that nice. was kind of the whole story of how we got to where we are today, where, you know, when those – Romeo and Sierra first came out or when it was first approved was in 20, that was in 2001. And now 22 years later, we shoot the first hellfire. So it's taken, taken a while, but you know, I, I I think that was a big milestone in, in naval aviation. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it was. Well, hell's to the yeah, it is. Nice. And it's kind of yes. maddening when you realize how long it takes <laughs> to get, you know, for, from concept to kinetic, you know, kinetic weapons going down range. Right. Well, yeah. you know, you guys are, you know, attack pilots and I'll be honest with you. There, there was a lot of institutional reluctance to, you know, let helicopters have dangerous weapons. You know, I mean, <laughs> well, yeah, it, it, I get I mean, that. <laughs> just look at the look at the quality of individuals, moral individual, the moral part of the individuals that fly those death machines. <laughs> exactly. Do we really want to trust these people with you know weapons capable of of uh, really doing mass mass destruction? It was you know, it's a more it's a moral question and. I guess we we finally got the answer, and yes, we can trust these. Well, if you've ever seen, and they're kicking ass. Yeah, (laughs) you've ever seen the movie The Bridges of Toko Ri? 
Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, Mickey Rooney is a helicopter pilot, you know, that wears a green top hat. Right. Uh, you know, and that was one of the things in my briefing. I would start out and saying, this isn't the Bridges of Toko Re helicopter pilot. Okay. You know, we need to put the right weapons on. And again, they, they you know, BZ to, to that crew. They just happen to be the crew there at the time, but you can imagine they're they're arming those and they're flying those all the time, ready to shoot the next boat that comes out there at the wrong time. Hey, uh, uh, Tontini, you just said something that I think we need to define. I don't know that we've ever defined it before. So you said BZ to that crew. Well, I know what BZ oh, yeah. means, but can you uh, can you define BZ for our listeners that are not naval aviators? So that's the term, and I'll let Sticks look it up because I I don't have that <laughs> on the tip of how it came. It has to do with the you know flag uh, you know signaling, but Bravo Zulu BZ is you know the term used in the navy for you know well done good job yeah, yeah. good and, good uh, finish maybe because these the last letter boy. I don't know. Boy. yeah what it is is it was used on signal flags so when you wanted to let another ship know that they did something well you would put up the bravo zulu flag so bravo that's where bravo zulu came from so. nice <laughs> Well done, Sticks. I knew. I knew. Yeah, that was a good call. I'm like a... Good call putting it right on Sticks. I'm like a, like a repository of trivia. Actually, I knew the answer to that, but I did look it up before I, I brought it about. But, you know. Of course you did. I would expect nothing less. <laughs> yeah. I always like to verify things before I, I shoot op- open my mouth. But, you know. What are you going to do? Yeah, well, that, that's the opposite of me. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I wanted to... I forgot to mention was... So, before... You know, during one time I was on drug ops down in the Caribbean. And again, we didn't have a armed helicopter. And also we were not, we did have a machine gun, but we were not allowed to use it in counter narcotics ops. There was a lot of reluctance to use guns because we didn't want them shooting missiles at us and et cetera. And, you know, escalation. But I was chasing a go fast. Go fast boat is a you know big multi engine outboard engine you know boat loaded with drugs and they were hauling butt to get back into Colombian waters because once they crossed into Colombian waters we couldn't chase them and I remember flying over the guy and of course we couldn't do anything and the guy. <laughs> Obviously knew it because he was sitting there in the boat giving us the finger. Uh, <laughs> of course. But, oh, that's that's got to make you mad. Yeah. Too. Things change, right. though, and Sticks can probably tell more, but the Coast Guard came up with these Hitron squadrons. Yep. Helicopter uh, interdictions unit. Yeah. And so we would take a – now we take Coast Guard snipers on board our, our helicopter, and they have a high-powered rifle. And if they try to, you know, hightail it into international waters or not stop, they'll take one shot in that engine and blow that top of that engine off, and they're dead in the water. Yep. 
Yeah, it's um actually it's a totally it's just what we now refer to in the Coast Guard as the AUF or the Airborne Use of Force mission. Fascinating, you know, progression. I actually was in in flying at the time that the unit stood up. The first time that we experimented with it, we used the MD500 Explorer, which is a NOTAR helicopter. The big advantage being that you did not have any lateral limitations on your uh, how fast you could go when you were in flight. Because one of the maneuvers they do is they will fly sideways along the, you know, almost parallel to the track of the boat. And, and then they would um, fire some rounds out in front of them to, to basically get them to wave off. And then the, the kill shot comes with a 50 cal and they put a round into the engines and we'll shut that down. But it progressed from the MD-500 Explorer for a very brief period of time to the Augusta 109s and then actually migrated back to the Dolphin. And our Charlie, now Delta version of the Dolphin, is now has that mission for the helicopter interdictions unit. But And the whole reason, again, that why the Coast Guard can do this and not the Navy is because we are not part of the Department of Defense. We are actually part of the Department of Homeland Security. So it becomes a law enforcement engagement, not a, a you know, a, a mission of, uh, or not a, you know, a defense operation. So it's otherwise well, actually, like an act of war. Actually, when we're on counter narcotics ops in the Navy and we have the, the lead debt, the law enforcement debt on board, if we're going to go board a ship or something, we actually have to strike up the Coast Guard flag yep. uh, because we because the the navy vessel it has to be under coast guard control not department of defense because the posse comitatus which prevents the military from doing police actions so yep. but but these days we don't have that problem and i guess in the end it's it's all a good news story that yeah. These helicopter pilots were well-armed. They went out there and they fired. Hopefully that will, you know, give more confidence to commanders that that they can do that mission and, you know, will will be used if needed in the future. But it, it was a long process in getting there, and which is – in the end, kind of surprising based on the remarkable history of HAL 3. You would have thought it would have been a lot easier, but right. the, the budget process has a very short memory. And th- this was mainly driven by budgetary pressures to not pay the money to buy the equipment that was needed to, to be able to do what they did. So did you ever actually yeah, well, get to fire a weapon off of one of the helicopters? I didn't get to. When I was the CEO of HSL 44, we got we had a Hellfire, and I arranged with the strike group commander during a COM-2X to – we were the first squadron to fire – or the first fleet squadron – some of the test squadrons had fired Hellfire, but we were the first fleet squadron to fire a Hellfire, and we fired it at a ship, not a ship, a boat target. And I sent repeat the picture of that. 
It's actually on the back of my book also. You can see it, it's in flames. But the, the interesting thing about yeah. that was, you know, again, no one had done that. And I personally briefed the strike group commander and convinced him to do a hellfire shot because it was scheduled to be a, I think it was a Maverick shot that they were going to shoot from attack air aircraft. And so when one of the thing, hellfire is, it's kind of a tricky missile to use over the water. You have to laser designate it. And if the laser hits the water, it can reflect and go off in different directions. And the, uh, the detonation of the device has to be set correctly because if you're going through like a, a boat with plywood, you know, the Hellfire missile was designed to penetrate a tank and then explode. So it'd go right through one of those wooden boats and out to yeah. the other side and it'd just be a hole in the boat. Exactly. So yeah. when we were setting up for that Hellfire shot against the target, I I had my crew that was going to go fire at one of the guys, I said, I want you to go to the target. There it is. Yeah, that's the target boat there on fire. I want you to go down to that target shop down in Puerto Rico, and I want you to make sure that the target is set up for us so this thing's going to detonate. And so what that required was blackening the, the windows so the laser wouldn't reflect off of it accidentally. And yeah. putting some extra plywood up in some areas so it wouldn't go through. But my the pilot that I told him to go to the to the shop uh, in Puerto Rico where they had the target, he goes down there, and some guy that's been there like thirty years is like, "What do you need?" And he's like, "I need to look at the target we're going to shoot at." And he's like, "Nobody ever does that." And he's like. You don't know my CEO. <laughs> my mind was, you know, of course, I didn't want to be the first one to fire and it goes through and doesn't detonate, right? Because right. what, yeah, what, what kind of picture would that be if the boat wasn't on fire? So he did all the stuff that we told him to. He, he blackened the window and everything went good. But, yeah. We, we surprised them that that, that target there was going to get a pre-flight before we were going to shoot at it. Nice. Hey, Tantini, I got a quick question for you from, from Bago. He, he wants to know, and actually I do too, this is a good question. Back to the scenario where a Navy, Navy ship puts, car, puts a Coast Guard flag out. Do you have to have Coast Guard personnel on to legally do that, or you just do it because you can no, you have to have a Coast Guard law enforcement debt. Okay, okay. It, the, the debt, if they're going to board, you know, the debt, and it's a police action, they have to do that. Right. You don't have okay. to have a debt on board. You could strike up the Coast Guard flag and be under Coast Guard control, you know, if you were just doing something with a ship without the debt necessarily being there but typically in the drug enforcement it's all a police action and really the navy does not go without the dead on board because they they can't do anything without them okay. okay all right now here's a this is one last thing 
This is for either uh, either of you fine naval aviator rotary wing pilots. My my man Stick said I said something and and I it, I knew what it meant, but I, but I thought you know I mean so you go Sticks in casual conversation when he was rattling off all the smart things that come out of his mouth hole, said something about no-tar. Right. And I thought, no-tar, no is that like a light kind of filterless cigarette? Or, uh, what is, but I know, what it, I know what it means, but can you, can you, one of you guys please define no-tar for our non-rotary wing good, good aviators that are listening, yeah. or maybe non-aviators yeah. that are listening? You, know, you want to take that one too, Teeny? I'll let you. Okay. So no tar is no tail rotor. And Oh, that's what Yeah. And uh, so it actually is very it's very unique looking. It's like a big pipe that comes out and you can direct basically I I believe they use the some air coming out of the compressor section and you can now get your anti-torque effect using that. But the the big difference So is it, would you say it's kind of like a puffer duct? So like you mean like on the uh, on the Harrier. Uh-huh. Yeah. 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 It's probably a little bit like that. Okay. And uh, it, it actually rotates longitudinal along, along the longitudinal axis of the, of the helicopter. So okay. it's, it's, it's a fascinating, totally different approach to it. But the, and as I had mentioned, the whole reason they, the, to use that is that, Helicopters, when they are in sideward flight, have a lateral speed limitation. So you can't go any faster than typically like 35 knots. Um, what happens is the, in effect, the tail rotor can enter into what's referred to as like a vortex ring state. And oh my God. if the tail rotor goes into a vortex ring state, you've now lost your anti-torque effects and things can get ugly pretty quickly. So I, I, I just sprained a lobe in my brain there. Wait, wait, hold on a second. <laughs> Ring? Did you say ring? Ring vortex? Vortex 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 ring ring state. So, uh, oh my! It's a vortex ring of fire state. My brain locked (laughs) up right then and there. My sphincter puckered up, and I I said, "Thank you, Jesus, for not like not making me fly." I can simplify this in a very simple term. It's basically the rotor system enters into an aerodynamic stall. Um, Why didn't you just say that to start with? That that (laughs) that I can. Kind of wrap my head because up. there are certain features about it that actually are, are unique. You get a high rate of descent with power in, and okay. you know as, as the rotor wash come, wraps back around, what happens is the angle of attack is you reach the critical angle of attack on the rotor blades, and you come screaming out of the sky. Hold on, would you do that again? <laughs> sure, <laughs> it's, it's like this. Army. Yeah, you know, if I'm doing I'm doing so. my pilot thing. You know, so. and, and, it, and we're gonna have some fun at these rotor heads' <laughs> oh. expense here, Fig. And we're going to put up the definition of a helicopter is a million parts rotating rapidly around an oil leak waiting for metal fatigue to set in. <laughs> so what you're also see Whirlybird. See also see Whirlybird. That's right. Here, sticks. This is this is this is what it's like briefing jet pilots in the Pentagon <laughs> on why you why you need helicopters and armed helos. Yeah. I, I keep telling yeah. them, you know, this is why, you know, helicopter pi- or jet pilots all look the same to me, though. You know, they're cold, they're wet, they're tired, and happy to see me when they're on the end of my hoist hook. 
<laughs> well played. Yes, I get that. Yes, well played. <laughs> Fair enough. The, the best part yeah. was so I'm, I'll give a quick side story. I was working in the ER as a nurse practitioner or as a nurse, and we were doing a reduction. And the surgeon, the orthopedic surgeon, hat we were doing a hip reduction. The orthopedic surgeon happened to be a, a pilot. He was a Marine Corps A4 pilot, I believe. Anyways, he was being a bit of a jerk. And so somebody goes, Hey, St- or John, weren't you a, a helicopter pilot on the Coast Guard? I was like, Yeah, yeah, I was. He goes, Oh, weren't you a jet pilot? And I'm like, Yeah, yeah, I was. Or, or says to the surgeon, He goes, Yeah. And I said, uh, And all those jet pilots look the same to me, cold, wet, tired, and happy to see me. So. <laughs> Nicely played. All yeah, right. Well played. Well played. Wow. So, all right. Well, hour and 23 minutes went like yeah. that. Boom. Done. Yeah. That. Very cool. Well, thank you for coming back. I can't tell you how much we appreciate that. Probably that getting awesome, the, Yeah, it, it was indeed. Well, it was I, indeed. I appreciate the invite, and I also appreciate, you know, having been the first helicopter guy and now listening I, I can't wait every week to, to listen to the next story. And you've had a number of helicopter guys. I'm sure you're getting a lot of TAC Air guys saying, why are the helicopter guys in here? Can't they get you their know, own channel? You uh, know what is amazing? I've had several of my TAC Air guy friends say, you need to get more helicopter guys on. Those stories are amazing. Those guys are I, nuts. It scares the living <laughs> shit out of me when they start talking. Yeah. And I'm like, you're absolutely right. We do. As a matter of fact, I'm going to tease this. You said yeah. something about uh, Task Force 160, the Night Stalkers. Uh, we uh, we got a guy coming on. Oh, great. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, you know, so. I, I enjoy the distinct privilege of, of being the one of the – partners in the podcast that is the and the one guy is a helicopter pilot so yeah i can point to a helicopter and say helicopter but (laughs) in the brains of the operation there you go no that's if if baggles back in the background doing magic shit right now that i think that's great that you 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 know included that and you know it the stories that you guys brought to life have are you know they're they're just amazing I just wish you could do like one every day, kind of like the Tonight Show. <laughs> you know, right? Once we retire, maybe yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, no, this it, has been fun stuff. It, it, so. Yeah, it really is. You know, the people that you've had on the junior people to the senior people. You know, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what they're flying. It just the 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 stories that they have to tell boy if we could get that to young pilots maybe they'd be safer because there's there's a lot right. of lessons learned there so uh to, to wrap maybe wrap it up do you have like one last story about like maybe landing the ship at night actually i do have a wrap-up it's not about landing on the ship okay but it's Marine Corps oriented. I think it's relevant. And so when I was CEO of HSL 44, we would once a quarter have a, a leadership day and we would go to a local theater and have somebody come out. And 
one day, one of the times we were lucky enough to have Captain Everett Pope, United States Marine Corps. Have you ever heard of him? I'm, I'm, I, you know, the name sounds familiar, yeah. but I don't know. Yeah. So Captain Pope won the Medal of Honor in World War II. He was on Peleliu, and he was, you can read the write-up, but basically him and his, his group that he had there, they were told to, to, to keep a hill. And they fought through the night. They ended up fighting hand to hand. Rocks and bare fists, it says. Yeah, they yeah. Were, they were throwing rocks at the enemy. By the time it was over, and it was an amazing, it, it's an amazing story about him. Very humble, humble gentleman. I think he got out of the Marines right after World War II, but he talked and. Then I asked him a question, and the question I asked him was, you know, first, before I say what that question was, a lot of people don't realize that these Marines that were landing on the islands in World War II, these are the same Marines, okay? They were going from one island to the next, okay? It wasn't, you know, a whole group of different guys, so... So they just got the crap beat out of them on one island, and then they had to go load up, and they were going to another island, okay? Yeah, So, right. you know. And, Groundhog Day. <laughs> yeah, and these guys are 17 and 18 years old, okay? So the question I had for Captain Pope was, uh, Captain, you know, here you have these guys, 17 and 18 year old, they just went through a buzzsaw on one island. Now you're loading them up, taking them to another island, and you're going to throw that ramp down again. How, how did you keep them motivated? How, how, how did you, you know, get them to go out that ramp? And he looked at me and he said two words, follow me. Oh, yeah. And <laughs> holy shit. Yeah, I, I, so the reason I bring that up is you've had a lot of great leaders on, fantastic people. There, that's a piece of this show. It's not just, you know, about stick and rudder. There, there's, there's another piece to it. And the leadership that these guys, Many of them have put in combat situations and things like that. I find that just as interesting as the stick and rudder pieces. And, you know, I think both in the Navy and the Marine Corps, you know, those two words are something that everybody tries to live up to. Well, that's that's well said. And uh, and, uh, take that compliment humbly. And right. include you wholly, sir, in that in that leadership. Your your efforts clearly made uh, our ability to project power with helicopters f- far more effective. And you know, we were I was joking with you a little bit before the show about how much uh, you know spending time in the Pentagon 
absolutely. You know, it's, it's just not, it's not a fun place to be when you're, you know, you want to be out flying helicopters, but it takes people who understand what those people out flying the helicopters and the jets are facing to get them the equipment and the support that they need. So thank you for your leadership and thank you for your service. It's, it's yeah, greatly appreciated. Again, yeah. Thank yeah. you for your service. I was happy. I, think I'll to- I was happy. I was able to actually, you know, a lot of people go to tours in the Pentagon. They don't get anything, you know, it's a rough place. I actually yeah. was kind of in the right place at the right time. And, you know, I actually can look and say, you know, again, when I see that picture of the of the helos off the Gravely with hellfires and a fleer, I'm like, yep, I know how that yep. got there. <laughs> well, that's, right, that's exactly. But that's part of the humility. That's the part of the humility that we're talking about. There is yep. that you know I was at the right place at the right time. Well, yeah, but you got it done right. when when others before you hadn't clearly. So yeah. so good on you. Congratulations. Absolutely. You know, and the one other so, and look, the one other thing. Look, I, um, one other thing I was going to add was uh, you are truly the embodiment of what my alma mater, our motto is, which is uh, act in non verba, deeds not words. So right. thank you. you go. Thank you for your service. Well done. So. So let's uh, let me go ahead and land begin landing the plane here. I'll get us set up on final approach and we'll go through this, gents. First of all, I want to mention again a book, American Quest, American Quest, available on Amazon, as is Looking for Santa Claus, both by Wayne Tunick. So go out and, and grab those books. Those are uh, I'm telling you, American Quest was a fun, fun read and looking for Santa Claus, great to help a toddler understand who Santa Claus is. So I might benefit from reading that book. There you go. There you go. Sticks, what do you think? Uh, oh, uh, I think it would probably help, Vic. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Love you, man. Did you get my text, Sticks? Oh, uh, no, I didn't. Hey. Sorry. Okay, wanna, all right. Well, then Fig and, I'll, Fig and I will get it. Yeah, salute to all of our uh, active military members, our veterans, and the families, especially the families who uh, – either supported or are still supporting our active duty military that are deployed all over the world right now and actually in harm's way, just we, like we talked about earlier today. Sadly, we're learning you know, that. Uh, they, are, right. they are in the service, whether they are or not. And without them, without their support, you know, our men and women that are, are doing that for us, you know, they, they wouldn't they be They couldn't affected. do it. They right, wouldn't do you. it. They couldn't do it. Yeah, exactly. Thanks also go out to Dave Hamilton, who has a few shows of his own, the Mac Geek Gab, the Gig Gab, and the Business Brain. And Dave has granted us the technical support and know-how and put us in touch with Cashfly, who provides us the bandwidth for the show, and also Backbeat Media. Online at backbeatmedia.com, they provide us with advertising. And if you have a show that you'd like advertising for, reach out to backbeatmedia.com. See if they can't bring you into this family. And on the social media side, don't forget to like, comment, and subscribe on YouTube. Also on Facebook, you can join our Facebook Facebook group there. And if you're looking for any sort of technical information or something about the show that we might have you know, not discussed, like Notar, you can go to so there I was dot us slash glossary. And you can also just find us on the web, on the web at uh, so there I was dot us. And we just put Notar up on the glossary. It's up there. <laughs> but if something's not there, shoot us an email. Where would you do that, Fig? At fig, repeat, or sticks at 
So there I was. Dot us. That's it. Yeah. And re- <laughs> repeat is R E P E T E, not R E, not the other way, not the conventional way of spelling it. We got some cool merchandise out there. Go to there I was. us slash merch to get yourself a cool hat, t shirt. I don't know, drinking glasses, mugs, anything. We got some really cool stuff bikini. there. Go out and see it. Yeah. We have we have yeah. a bikini. Yeah. Got it. Absolutely. <laughs> I do not look good and, in a bikini. Well, there's that. Ooh, kicking Thank stuff you. here. So, uh, to the folks who provide us with uh, other help, uh, first of all, Bago, thank you very much for what you do. He was producing the show to, for us today in the background. He runs our group over there at facebook.com slash so there I was dot us. We have over 600 folks there, rapidly approaching 700 folks on the Facebook group. And uh, also a uh, thank you to, uh, to you, Tuntini, for the, uh, for the donation you gave us. And another gent by the name of Rich Walker, who has uh, donated directly on our website. We thank you for uh, taking that hard-earned money and uh, throwing it in our direction. <laughs> hey, we don't Rich. know why you do it, but we're humbled that you do. And, it, and well, it's great. It you. helps us bring yeah, this to I you. would say to everybody, donate. Keep these... Keep these guys going. They look, hey, they I, look I, like they're I, in their last leg. So. <laughs> <laughs> Repeat, I, I think you missed uh, uh, Mr. Rich Walker's call sign. Oh, I may have. Yeah, it's uh, Rich Dog Walker. <laughs> <laughs> call sign. All right, dog. <laughs> Beautiful. That's awesome. <laughs> And he just pulled his donation. I don't get it. <laughs> so, all right. Well, uh, and then a couple folks that provide us with a little music. Who who are those guys? Oh, man. Those are the two Air Force F-16 pilots that make the Air Force sound good. That's There's the, Dos. Dos Gringos. Yeah. yeah. They, they, uh, they have great music. Four albums and not one bad song. Uh, you can't have a bad day when you listen to the, any one of those songs. They're all they're all really really good. Most yes. of them are hilarious. Spot on. Well, and in uh, honor uh, and maybe in fear of not getting uh, smacked around more by the rotor heads, until next week, don't let go of the collective. Don't let go. Don't let go, don't go of, of it. the collective. Yep. Damn it! Well, there I was. Crossing the pond and you could see that I wasn't exactly fun Of all the shit I was wearing on that day Now an F-16 is cramped enough But it's even worse with all that stuff Supposed to save your life But we knew there was no way Cause when you're going down the North Atlantic, man, it's over What? He said it's over Oh, boy, is this great! (laughs) And we're out. Awesome.